Dennis Stewart, last week you spoke about the remarkable American herb slippery elm and particularly looking at its benefits in protecting the gut wall and regulating gut function. But you also wanted to talk about another remarkable herb and that is? Meadowsweet. Remarkable. Equally remarkable as slippery elm. We'll talk about the remarkable properties of this remarkable herb in a moment. To NURFM and Health Naturally coming your way right now with Dennis Stewart, ready to answer your questions and also to talk, Dennis, about Meadowsweet, mm, which has mm. such a sweet name too. Look, it's a sweet name. It's a sweet herb. And I come back to the way I described it at the beginning of the program. It's a remarkable herb. But, of course, you would say, Jane, all herbs to you are remarkable. Well, that's true. <laughs> Here we are in the 21st century, and we're looking at these little entities that have been around since creation, and they are still as remarkable today as far as their appearance and their properties as they have been historically. And with Meadowsweet... Um, it's pr- predominantly uh, a European and particularly an English herb with, and I say it again, remarkable properties. <laughs> Last week we were talking about slippery elm, which is distinctly an American herb and represents probably a, a major contribution of American plants, flora and herbs to the practice of Western herbalism. And we spoke about a slippery elm, we've spoken about it frequently on this program, but again we reiterated its its properties in helping protect the gut wall at all levels and last week we spoke about the way in which it also had a regulating effect on transit time in the gastrointestinal tract and again, uh, for those that weren't listening, we'd emphasise it still is an underappreciated and underused herb both at the lay level and also at the medical level, although I'm pleased to say, Jane, I note increasingly that the the, the herb is being recommended more by mainstream medical practitioners than ever it's been. So I would like to think that that is a result of our preaching the gospel (laughs) of slippery elm and its properties for the gut, a protective agent and a regulating agent. But when we talk about meadowsweet, we're talking about a diminutive uh, herb as opposed to the bark of the American elm, but it is a herb that's frequently prescribed together with slippery elm because whereas slippery elm regulates but more importantly protects the upper gut from inflammatory activity, from what we used to call hyperacidity, um, when we come to meadowsweet, it has a much more regulating effect on uh, secretory activity from the stomach. In fact, uh, older English herbalists Uh, referred to it as the normaliser of stomach functioning. There was a a fascinating um, uh, English herbalist. I owe a lot uh, to English herbalism. My mentors were all the greats uh, of uh, just before the Second World War and just after the Second World War, Uh, and one of them was uh, Frank Roberts, uh, a brilliant, sometimes eccentric uh, herbalist, but wrote a number of works, and one of the works that he wrote was entitled uh, Modern Herbal Medicine uh, um, for Digestive Disorders. And Roberts, in that book, uh, glowingly spoke about meadowsweet as a herb that normalised the secretory activity of the gut. Now, what does that mean? Well, we live in a society today where a large percentage of the population are taking medications for things like reflux and and heartburn, all those uncomfortable conditions 
associated with inflammatory states of the upper gut. Now, I've got nothing against their their use, and sometimes they're absolutely necessary, but there's a little bit of uh, concern these days about these medications, which many listeners know what I'm talking about. I'll not mention their names, but uh, many doctors are prescribing these things for patients that present with anything from a cough through to heartburn to hypersidity. My concern is my concern is that going down the pathway of using that medication is there a consequence after one has been on them for any length of time as to how the gut functions and what effect does it have on the gastro on the gastrointestinal tract generally and one of my colleagues I think I mentioned this uh, a pharmacist uh, from Melbourne who with myself has developed uh, many herbal products. He's a pharmacist, eminently qualified, recognised around the world for his skills as a pharmacist and also a a formulator. He said to me some time ago uh, about uh, Meadow Sweet, its inclusion in a product, he said, you want to gear up uh, for products based on this, he said, because the way we're retreating in pharmacy from popular medications used to treat the upper gut, he says, means that there's a need for something perhaps safer, uh, easily accessed, and with a credible uh, empirical reputation. And Meadowsweet fits into that range. And so whereas the Great Slippery Elm, as I've said, protects the gut wall against inflammation and regulates gut function, when we look at Meadowsweet, it actually regulates what we call the secretory activity, the the level, if you like, of acid in the stomach. Uh, Robert says it's the normaliser of the stomach. So in the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia, it's called up confidently as a herb to function prophylactically, that's preventatively, against things like peptic ulcers. It's used as a management tool and has been for many years by medical herbalists such as myself to treat some levels of recognised um, gut dysfunction, inflammatory states, uh, states of gastritis, mild ulceration, a herb to be used at times uh, in place of or taking over from mainstream medication. Now, the fortunate thing is it's a very safe and easily accessed economical herb which can be purchased from a good health food store, herbalist or pharmacy, and in a tea form, pleasant as it is, it can be taken regularly and one will very quickly experience some of the soothing effects that regular use of Metasweet Herb can have on, on an irritable stomach. And we are talking about the remarkable herb, <laughs> Meadowsweet. I'm glad you've used that herb. <laughs> See, I've converted you. You're talking now herbally in a remarkable way. <laughs> okay, look, just reiterating something about this remarkable herb. It's, it's name, for the sake of one listener that uh, rang in who missed the name, the name of the herb is Meadowsweet. Botanically, however, its name is Philippendula ulmeria. And as herbalists... We are bilingual. We talk about our herbs by their common name, but we also, when we write articles or write scripts or lecture on them, we talk also about their botanical names. And the botanical name of a a herb allows it to be understood and written about universally rather than be bogged down with common names that can vary. And we spoke about Meadowsweet as an underappreciated, perfectly harmless, economical herb to be used for irritable states, that's a good term, irritable states 
of the upper gut, that is the stomach, things which we'll simply call heartburn uh, or reflux, if you want to use that terminology, uh, even used as a simple herbal tea, and I'll say it again, even used as a simple herbal tea. Don't, I say to listeners, don't underestimate the most traditional way of using the herb. And the most traditional way of using the herb has always been a domestic preparation, what we call a herbal infusion, where usually a teaspoonful of the dried herb is made as you would make a cup of coffee. And if taken regularly in that simple form, the majority of herbs that we use can yield their active chemicals to the, to the hot water and can elicit a significant, a significant therapeutic effect within the body. Now, I say this because, uh, uh, this, uh, this sounds a little bit radical, what I'm going to say. I say this because one of the fears that I have is that, that herbal medicine and herbalism um, is in danger, in my opinion, of being reduced to a tableted or encapsulated and sometimes costly or, uh, preparation. That worries me because there are many people that, that can't afford some of the costly, sophisticated, modern preparations uh, of herbs. The simple herb, and that's the term that I used last week, a herbal simple, that is using the dried herb, purchased from, from good suppliers, and our health food stores function well that way, uh, used regularly as a herbal tea, can particularly address this problem that we've been talking about. But also, very quickly I'll say, um, interestingly with meadowsweet, people probably don't appreciate this, meadowsweet was the herb which originally was used to extract salicylic acid. In other words, it was, like willow bark, a precursor of aspirin. Because the interesting thing about meadowsweet, paradoxical about meadowsweet, is that its crude salicins also are useful in addressing some levels of inflammatory activity, arthritis and rheumatism. It is a mild, very safe, competitive, gentle anti-inflammatory agent due to its content of what we call crude salicins, which years ago were extracted from this herb, subsequently also from the willow bark, and converted into what we might call aspirin. But the interesting thing is with meadowsweet, uh, it has no irritable effect on the gut wall. If anything, it's soothing, protective. So when we talk about meadowsweet being a remarkable herb, it is remarkable because here we have, paradoxically, a herb that can have remarkable effects on the upper gut, but also has remarkable effects used by people who have signs and symptoms of inflammatory activity of their joints at a, at a, at a low-grade level, admittedly, who might, by using meadowsweet, get by, manage their condition without having to go down the pathway of anti-inflammatory drugs. Always a good thought, isn't mm, it? Keep it is. away from the hard stuff. Not that you'd call them yeah, hard. Yeah. Now, Christine's rung in from Katara, Dennis, and, and Christine, you've got a question about liver cysts, cysts in the liver. Hello? Yes, hello. Hello, Christine. Um, hello, Dennis. Good, good. Uh, nice show. Thank you. Yeah, nice to hear you talk. Thank you. Um, just recently on a CT scan of my lungs, yes. um, I, they had an incidental finding of um, some cysts in my liver. Yes. Um, now, I looked it up on the internet and apparently they can be there <clears throat> all your life and yes. cause you no problems. Yes, yes. 
but um, what would be the best way of dealing with them or trying to get rid of them or...? Well, look, um, you've, you've obviously um, discussed this w- with your GP and maybe uh, a specialist. Have you, have you discussed it at that level? Um, I've had an ultrasound and, it, and it, it's just come up that they're okay. cysts and, okay. and you know, various sizes. And, and your GP um, followed up the report with you? Yeah, she's, she doesn't think that she's going to do anything about it. She'll send me to a haematologist shortly. Okay. Because I had some pulmonary emboluses spontaneously from a DVT a couple of months ago. Okay. Well, look, what I would say here is that I think you're probably right. Um, Cysts can exist um, in the kidneys. A cyst can uh, exist um, um, in the liver. Um, A cyst can um, also occupy a testicle. And in many, 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 if not the majority of cases, they're benign lesions and as such probably should be just left alone, at best monitored by those that have uh, a knowledge and interest in it. If you are concerned, I think your GP would uh, have no problems in referring you to a hepatologist, someone who specialises in, um, in, in, in liver conditions, who may um, have some information that would further alleviate your concern. Um, if okay. let, let me just say that the the liver um, is is a remarkable organ. It's probably the only organ in the body that's capable of regenerating itself. It's a very resilient organ. We give it a, a terrible battering, uh, particularly in in our modern lifestyle. And so the existence of benign cystic lesions, monitored by our good doctors and perhaps specialists, may be nothing to worry about, particularly. Um, if your liver function tests are okay, and they're always yeah. a good, they're always a good indicator of how your liver yeah. is tracking. And the the, the liver in, can relatively easily, even by, by a layperson, um, be assessed by your doctor giving you a regular uh, blood test in which what we call the liver enzymes would be indicated, and markers would give you the level of them. And so long as the level of the enzymes is within, if you like, the bracketed range, it's reasonable to assume that your liver's tracking all right. Let me just, okay. let me just conclude by saying, um, and this is not in any way at all to contradict what your good doctor or others may have said in what I have said, but in herbal medicine we talk frequently about what are called organ remedies. Now, what do we mean by organ remedies? This is a term perhaps unique to the herbal medicine profession, and I have no... Uh, need to apologise for using some of this distinctive trade language, if you like. Herbal medicine has a right to exist. It has its own terminology, its own philosophies, its own language. And we talk about organ remedies, and they are, if you like, remedies which have been shown to have a non-specific, and I emphasise that, a non-specific regulating and healing effect on particular organs. For instance, we talk about uh, the herb saw palmito as having a, a, a good effect on the prostate gland, particularly in the early stages of enlargement. With the liver, there are organ remedies which herbalists have given great credibility to as maintaining, if you like, good uh, liver function. And again here I'll throw in a term that, that we use. We use the term a congested liver 
Now, what that means is the the liver is not diseased as such, but in our in our uh, in our philosophy, it's it's stressed, if you like. And so there we use herbs like dandelion, a globe artichoke, and without doubt, and I say without doubt, I'll not be contradicted on this, the most well-known um, herb with a mass of credible uh, literature to support it, particularly European um, medical papers, is the herb St. Mary's thistle. Um, so right, yeah. what, what, I would say, what I would say is that those three herbs, dandelion, globe artichoke, St. Mary's th- thistle, are organ remedies for the liver. I'm not saying that they'll have an effect on, on this condition because there may not be any need. But if one were to address uh, a condition of the liver, um, I would see those three herbs as being important. Health Naturally with Dennis Stewart is the program. And Dennis, we've talked about Meadowsweet and uh, its remarkable uh, uh, remarkable qualities. Mm. Um, now, turmeric is another herb that you're very keen on, I should say, because of its benefits to people. Mm. And mm. you've mm. had a, during the week, you've had an interesting, um, well, something that's come up about turmeric. Uh, look, it's, as I intimated a moment ago in, in conversation with you, it's, quite interesting in talking uh, with my patients or clients about the way that uh, people are beginning or have been using uh, turmeric some, uh, in many, many cases as a result of listening to the program. Um, it's quite interesting because go back five or six years and turmeric was very rarely mentioned uh, by people to me. It was not well known. Um, but over the years, I know we've spoken about it frequently uh, because in, in, in this pursuit of trying to find new uh, medical substances within plants, uh, turmeric has been looked at increasingly from a scientific perspective. And even though it has been used popularly in South Asia, that's India and Pakistan for thousands of years, in the West it hasn't been a popular herb. Uh, in in Asia, of course, it's the it's the basis of, of of curry, but here in the West, where we're pursuing plants more than ever to look for active chemical constituents, turmeric in recent times has been dissected, and its its traditional benefits have been seen to be related to its containing of a, of a very significant active chemical known as curcumin. Now, I'm quick to point out to listeners that might be interested in turmeric. Turmeric is the herb. Turmeric is the food substance. Turmeric is that constituent of curry which gives it its its red uh, or its, its yellow um, appearance and its pungent taste. Curcumin, on the other hand, is one of the chemical constituents found in turmeric. Don't confuse, however, turmeric with curcumin. Turmeric contains curcumin. Curcumin is an extract, an isolate from turmeric, and it is used popularly in over-the-counter medications for some lower, low-level, milder levels of joint inflammation. And that's where it's made its popular impact in what I call the natural drug world. There are many preparations now in pharmacies, health food stores, herbal medicine practices that uh, are based, if you like, on curcumin, but does and most of them are expensive, 
and and worries me, as I've said earlier on the program, because much of what now is available uh, at the natural health level, unfortunately, is 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 sophisticated and therefore expensive, and that's why I'm trying desperately to talk about these herbs as simple substances. Now, yesterday in my rooms at New Lambton, I, I saw a, a lovely lady who had been using uh, turmeric, um, and she was using it just. I guess, for general health measures. Uh, she was a fan of it uh, and had heard us talk about turmeric on the program and, like many other listeners, has appended it to their daily supplement routine. Good thing about it is, as she was pointed out to me, is turmeric, to use an expression, is dirt cheap. If you go into an Asian food store, you can virtually buy a ton of it. I'm exaggerating. For very, very, it's very, very economical. So you don't have to uh, purchase it, um, uh, how can you call it, uh, in, in sophisticated forms. But she was using it, uh, a teaspoonful of it, and she was using it with a little bit of black pepper, which is a, an ideal way of ensuring the uptake of it. And she was using it for, for as a general principle with perhaps some expectation that it might uh, alleviate a low-grade level of, of, of arthritis, not that it was serious. But there hadn't been any notable impact on the, the arthritic condition. I was quick to point out to her, however, that if one is using turmeric, and one can use turmeric to address uh, joint inflammation, the milder levels of arthritis and rheumatic pain. One can use turmeric just as much as one can use curcumin, and of course at a much cheaper uh, level. But, and this is the way I had to explain it to this dear lady, if one is going to use the dried, powdered turmeric, one must take it at levels that would convey the required level of curcumin to give you the anti-inflammatory benefit. So this dear lady was uh, seeking to establish a therapeutic effect taking uh, basically a level teaspoonful. I pointed out to her uh, a medical expectation from the dried herb, technically speaking, would require about three teaspoonfuls of powdered turmeric per day in whatever form, whatever form you the, the, the client or the user uh, found favourable. And if you were to get on the net... There are so many tricks of the trade in using turmeric that you, you would be quite amazed. It doesn't matter how you use it, but if you're trying to get some a mild anti-inflammatory pain-relieving effect for a low-grade level of joint inflammation, a teaspoonful is barely likely to give you a result. So listeners, if you're trying to use turmeric, keeping your costs down, I applaud you for that, use it in about a teaspoonful, about three times daily, that is if you can tolerate it. And I say that because not everyone can tolerate pungent herbs. Most people, are, however, warm to it, or in taking turmeric would blend it with uh, substances that would buffer its pungency. But to achieve a genuine a therapeutic effect, uh, using the powdered herb, what I call the herbal simple, you have to do more than just a level teaspoonful of the herb. It wouldn't contain enough of the active. 
Yes, turmeric does sound like an interesting... And we don't all have curries every day, do we? Well, what a pity. What a pity. <laughs> we should. Because, because we could talk about that topic also. I, uh, if I get a chance, I'll talk about the observation associated with virtually the daily use of curry in more traditional cultures. And it is Health Naturally today on 2NURFM. Barry rang from Caves Beach. Barry, um, you're a little concerned because your grandson has a low sperm count, yes? Yes. Very low. Uh huh. Well, how old's the grandson, Barry? Uh, 37. 37. Okay. Um, now, with this condition, has that uh, affected his um, capacity to be able to, to have children or participate? That's correct. Okay. Now, in a condition like this, uh, has he had a background of mumps or anything like that? No. Okay. Obviously, he would have been uh, investigated, assessed and tested by a urologist? Yes. Okay. And what are the findings that came up as a result of that? That he has a low sperm count. Okay. Did the urologist say that the low sperm count uh, completely precluded his possibility of fathering a child? Yes, so far. Okay. That's why I'm ringing. Okay. Um, Look, most of these conditions to start with are not easy to treat, and I'm not in any way at all going to try to say, oh, have I got something for you? But I'll I'll tell you a fascinating story. This is a, a true case which encourages me to recommend a trial on some of the herbs. Many, many years ago, when I came back from my Warunga practice to to practice in Newcastle, just before the earthquake, I saw a delightful Malaysian gentleman uh, whom I had previously treated uh, for dermatitis. He was a chef at a, a local Asian restaurant and developed dermatitis. And I was able to help him considerably uh, just with my chickweed ointment. Later on, he presented with a much more serious condition. The gentleman was a delightful man um, and had great confidence in herbs because, as he pointed out, uh, in Malaysia, where he came from, um, everyone would would, would see a herbalist for their problems. And so um, he presented later on, um, and his essential problem, as he explained it, was that he was no good in inverted commas, and I I struggled to understand what he meant by that, but he went on to point out that uh, he had been married for some time to a a European lass from from Kempsey, and and they were not able to have any children, and um, he wanted some help. Uh, And I said, well, look, you know, this is something that you need to to, to see your doctor about. So fortunately, uh, one of my graduates was a Chinese uh, doctor who's still a a very, very good friend of mine has been uh, studied with me in the late 70s and has done every course I've ever practised. An excellent doctor, graduated from medicine at the Uni of New South Wales and uh, a lovely um, Chinese-Australian gentleman. And I rang this this chap up. I said, oh, look, I'd like you to see this chap. You'd probably understand him better than I can. And I said, let me know. So later on, he rang me up and said, look, um, we've done tests down here at uh, in Sydney he said, um, this chap will not be able to father children. Um, his sperm count is virtually zilch. He said, so you just have to tell him that. I said, oh, I wish you'd have told him. So anyway, this gentleman had so much 
confident that when I tried to point out to him that there was really nothing that we could do, his, this is a true story, his, his confidence was, oh, no, he says, you'll be able to fix me. He said in, in Malaysia they would fix me. He said, and what's more, he said, uh, you fix me fingers, uh, fix me dermatitis, you can give me some herbs and uh, everything will be right. I thought, oh, geez, you know, what can I do? Anyway, I, I did prescribe. I did prescribe, and perhaps I shouldn't have prescribed, but this chap had so much confidence in herbs and herbal medicine, and uh, I developed a great dialogue with him. Um, uh, I love some of the Asian people, if not all of them. They're so trusting, and he was he was he was one of them. So um, I prescribed a formula which I still use. Um, it had Siberian ginseng in it, some Panax ginseng. Uh, we used some saw palmito. Those three herbs are still uh, popularly used. At that stage, we also used a herb called Damiana, which these days is restricted only to medical prescription. And um, there were some oats in it, and they're the core remedies. There's nothing very exciting in it. Well, you're not going to believe it. Uh, That gentleman, within three or four months, presented with his wife on on my staircase in my rooms in Church Street. I had the lower level. <laughs> and uh, uh, he presented with his wife from um, from Kempsey, who was very pregnant, and um, just took it for granted that the herbs had done the trick. Now, I don't know whether the herbs had done the trick, but um, when I rang my, my Chinese medical friend in Sydney and, and told him the story, he said, Oh, he said, you're a miracle worker. You can do anything now. He said it facetiously. I know this gentleman. But interestingly... Um, he went on to have two children. So um, what I'm saying here, I'm not contradicting the dismal interpretation of any urologist. All I'm saying is that I have a case um, where a low sperm count with a dismal ability to uh, fatherhood completely changed this gentleman's life. His kids now would well, they'd be probably... 30, 35 years of age, I guess. Two kids, both of them uh, went on to become university graduates. And he would say, he would say that it was the herbs that did the job. I'm not saying they are, but something did the job. And uh, if you ask, what would you recommend? Well, there's no, no harm in giving that a go. Of course, every urologist in Newcastle will be laughing at me, but I've seen the benefit of these things in turning a case around. I've got a, a right to speak about <laughs> A case like that. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thank you for your call, Barry, and um, let's hope, well, let's hope something is working out. Yeah, another immaculate conception. (laughs) Something like that. It's 10 to 1 to a new RFM. Now, Dennis, it is still winter. Mm. We're not quite so cold today, Mm. but there are cold bits in every day at the moment, and that's what winter is, I suppose. Uh, So it's not a bad idea to talk about things that will Help well, us. Look, I, I have been preparing for a, a seminar which I'm to give in six weeks' time on immunology and looking at various ways <clears throat> in which the body can be supported immunologically, particularly in resisting flus and flu viruses, and particularly with reference to the elderly. Uh, the elderly, and I put myself in that camp, the elderly um, suffer one problem as we, uh, we get older our immune system becomes a little bit fragile, a little bit weaker perhaps than it previously was. And if there's anything that we can do, therefore, to lift our game and help our body in its perhaps uh, weakening state 
to resist infection at any level, we should try it. And I was looking at the way in which in, in Asian medicine, in Ayurvedic medicine, which is the medical system of South Asia, that's India, and in, in, in Chinese medicine, that um, there's a great deal of uh, reference being made to the use of pungent, warming herbs, particularly as agents to resist what both cultural systems of medicine refer to as cold, damp diseases. Now, cold, damp diseases is, if you like, a cultural way of talking about respiratory infections, viral or bacterial, which um, manifest themselves at times of the year particularly where it is cold and where dampness or wetness can also be a factor. And in this context, the use of pungent, warming, drying herbs in Asian medicine and in Ayurvedic medicine is seen as a useful contributor to function preventatively uh, against these respiratory conditions and assist in their management. There was a paper written years ago, which I still have on my files somewhere, which I used to give out to my uh, students. It was simply called HOT, in inverted commas. It was written by a Dr. Zyment, Z-I-M-M-E-N-T, I think it was. He was working for the World Health Organization, and he looked at the way in which hot pungent herbs used in traditional systems of medicine perhaps explained the relative freedom from some of the chronic respiratory conditions we experience in the West. And he referred to the secret being the regular, almost daily use of pungent, warming, drying-type herbs, which he referred to as having a mucolytic effect in respiratory systems. What does that mean? It means uh, helping, if you like, resolve mucus, making expectoration more easy. Uh, and more productive. And he also spoke about these herbs as being bronchomucotrophic, which means the, 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 the respiratory wall, the lung wall, was supported and, and uh, became more trophic or responsive to the benefits of the warmth, the imp- improvement in blood flow uh, to the lungs. So this encourages me to say, particularly uh, to elderly people at this time of the year, fighting any form of virus, try to include at a daily level pungent, drying, warming herbs, some of which are things like ginger. I'm a great fan of ginger, regular daily use of ginger tea. Think about also, if you can handle it, the regular use of cayenne or chilli, probably the best of all, a bit too strong for some people. Don't overlook, please don't overlook, the regular daily use of using garlic. I oh, can talk good. about garlic all day. <laughs> Lots you, of garlic. You, you, might, you mightn't have many friends, but there's a good chance that uh, you'll do better in keeping the lung, the respiratory system, functioning better in resisting infection and helping fight infection, viral or bacterial, particularly at this time of the year when it is colder and sometimes much damper. I was reading a paper, and I'll finish on this point, I was reading a paper this morning written by a well-known, probably one of the best-known English herbalists, a chap called Simon Mills, 
uh, those practitioners out there that listen to this program, and I'm thinking of you, Danny, on the Atherton when you get hold of this, and I know you get uh, each of these segments, uh, you will have heard me talk about Simon Mills and his book, Dictionary of Modern Herbalism. Well, I'm looking at an article that he wrote, a popular article on herbs and infections, and he, in talking about garlic, referred to it as it's, it's known popularly as the Russian antibiotic. And then he goes on to explain that the use of garlic, uh, particularly by the Russians in the First World War, and particularly when their troops were in the trenches and dying like flies of sepsis, influenza and battle wounds, the copious use, the copious therapeutic use of garlic was put down to the way in which many soldiers would have previously died of sepsis, influenza or battle wounds had they not been orally treated with garlic preparations and garlic also being used topical, topically in appropriate lesions. So again, don't underestimate this herb which has a, 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 great, a great reputation already, popularly available as garlic pearls, Best taken, actually, as a food. Best taken as a food. We've said a lot today, but for my elderly colleagues out there, take on board the need to not just surrender this stage of your life to the dismal prognosis that's given to us. Take on some about what we've spoken about today. Go the garlic. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dennis Stewart. And that is Health Naturally for today. Back next Friday after the midday news on 2NURFM. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.